HuntStand is the most popular and functional mobile hunting app on the market. With a variety of base maps to choose from, satellite imagery that is updated every month, the ability to check the weather, no property information, and even catalog your trail cam picks, HuntStand even gives you the ability to import pins and location markers from other mobile apps. Visit HuntStand.com or download wherever you download your apps. Enter discount code SN20 at checkout for 20% off. What's up, everybody? A good Monday morning, afternoon, evening, whenever you're listening uh, to you. Welcome back to the Michigan Wild Podcast, and I'm your host, Marcus Ewing. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Heather Shaw, and Heather is a native Michigander. Uh, Heather currently works for uh, Michigan Department of Natural Resources, the DNR. Um, <clears throat> not only that, she is um, kind of, I mean, she's an obsessive bird hunter. She she says so herself uh, throughout the course of the episode, but just uh all around loves the outdoors loves the resources the, the the resource that is the outdoors and you know today we get to talk about um, her position um, as a wildlife biologist with the DNR kind of what that entails where she's located or the area in which she's working in uh, how you know the outdoors was really introduced to her she grew up um, big uh, into horses and then went to college um, to kind of pursue that and then got to a point where she had a bit of a mind shift. She had some stuff um, that caused her to kind of reroute that um, and led down the path of being a biologist. Um, Heather and I actually get to share some uh, similar life experiences, I guess, and things that um, kind of put our relationship with the outdoors or our passion for the outdoors into perspective um, and kind of made us stand on our own two feet a bit more as opposed to um, relying uh, on on someone else to kind of be able to answer some of those questions for us uh, and whatnot. So um, it's one of those things that, you know, it wasn't something I planned to talk about, but um, it just, the conversation just kind of flowed into it. And um, it, was, it was really nice to be able to share that, um, you know, experience with someone else um, who has, has, has certainly gone through a, a very similar experience, which uh, you guys will hear. Uh, and then from there, we get to talk about bird hunting. Um, as I mentioned, Heather is, uh, is obsessive over bird hunting. She loves it. Um, and we get to talk about that, what the season looks like. Um, and then also uh, a really cool experience that uh, Heather got to have a few years back, um, taking a world-class chef out on a bird hunt uh, up there in the UP. So all in all, just a, an absolutely great conversation. Um, yeah, episode nine with Heather Shaw. Enjoy, everybody. Heather Shaw, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Thanks, Marcus. I'm great. How are you? I'm good. Uh, we're, like, I feel like the first like half of this podcast is going to seem like super repetitive because we just spent like the last 15 minutes just like BSing and catching up. And at one point, I was like, "Well, we got to stop. Like, we got to start recording here because we have so many good little nuggets that we're spitting out here, and I, I'd hate to like waste them." No problem. We can repeat them. We can re- revisit them. <laughs> yeah. Well, <clears throat> I will say this again though. Uh, I do appreciate the time. I know you said you had like a crazy busy day uh, there in the UP. And not only that, just like this time of year, it's 
there's so many things to do outside, right? Whether you could be deer hunting, bird hunting, waterfowl hunting, geese, uh, goose hunting. I mean, they just, the list goes on and on. So, I mean, I realize we're doing this after dark. So it's probably a good thing that, uh, that we're doing it now. Cause I feel like on a weekend or during the day would be awful hard to find time. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate it too. I'm usually out of service by the weekends and I, I roll out to camp, but yeah, it's not like I'm out shining deer or anything at eight o'clock at night. So <laughs> I'm pretty, I'm pretty open right now. <laughs> no, that's good. Well, Heather, tell the listeners a bit about yourself. Okay. Yeah. So this is always one that is funny. And I, I think I just mentioned to you, like, Hey, I don't ever want to be repetitive and telling like a story or where I've been or what I've done, but, um, long story short from Michigan, from Southeast Michigan originally, live in the UP now, South Marquette and Gwynn. Um, I'm a wildlife biologist for the Wildlife Division, Michigan DNR, and I manage the Shingleton Management Unit, which is basically Lake Superior down to Lake Michigan, and anything and everything that comes with it, with from population management, disease surveillance, population estimates, um, habitat management, working with our local conservation groups and NGOs and partners, you name it, we do a little bit of everything. and respond to all of the calls that might come in uh, from the public or from our hunters. So before that, um, for a long time, many, many years, I was a wildlife biologist for the Rough Grouse Society and covered Michigan, Ohio, and Indiana there. Um, so I'm really, my, my background is steeped in game bird ecology and management. Um, I was in North Dakota and Wyoming. I worked for Ducks Unlimited, North Dakota Game and Fish, Wyoming Game and Fish as well. And Bounced around quite a bit as a budding biologist, just building a name for myself and a career in game bird ecology and management. So I'm just a, a diehard bird hunter, and that's where my passion is. Um, so I try to emphasize additional game bird work whenever I can um, for the UP. And I work as the grouse and woodcock point person, kind of the specialist for our region, not the state. But it's given me a lot of uh, really cool opportunities to still continue to partner up. I've always told people I'm a, I've been the redheaded stepchild of the wildlife division. <laughs> For like 15 years, most of my career, <laughs> and now I'm I'm working with people that I've worked alongside of for a very long time. So it all kind of went full circle, and it's good to be just giving back to the the resource in Michigan. Yeah, well, that's a hell of a, a resume. I mean, you've been you've been all over. You've probably seen some things. So what made you decide to to go down the path of of being a wildlife biologist? It's kind of crazy. I don't have a great answer, like a straight arrow answer for that. I actually, so I, I grew up showing horses and rodeoing. Like I was third in the nation barrel racer. I was diehard. I was going to go pro barrel racing or bust. That was, that was it for me. And I had a full ride scholarship to University of Finley for equine veterinary medicine. And I started off there and I was in vet school for quite a few years and had things going on with my family where I needed to be closer to home. And I still wanted to stay within the sciences and I don't know. I was young. I had a change of heart. I loved the outdoors. I was really passionate about the resource and wanted to get more involved in that and ended up transferring to Central and just fell in love with their biology program. Started doing research right off the bat with forest management. Spent a lot of time on Beaver Island. Holy crap. <laughs> I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I'm thankful for the experiences I had there, but they're, they're all Irish and I am some Irish as well. <laughs> And I, I learned a lot about myself on that on that island and my, the direction of the career I wanted to take, uh, basically, when it came to, um, at the time I was looking at like stop, stopover ecology and management, kind of helped me forge that path. And I was just cutting my teeth. I started duck hunting before anything and turkey hunting. Um, now I'm like upland all the way. <laughs> I try to do a little bit of everything still, of course, but that, um, that paved my way. I took a job with Wyoming Game and Fish right from undergrad as a game bird technician out there and started big game hunting in Wyoming and just kind of carving my way around. And I was a gypsy. It was awesome though. I, I moved from different States. I can't recommend 
this to anyone early on in their career or any point in time in their life. I moved to different states in the middle of nowhere out west, knowing no one. And it was the best thing I could have ever done for myself. You know, really? it, it teaches you a lot about yourself and what you're like, how much grit you really have. That's Especially true. When you're trying to learn a landscape and build a life and start hunting there and contacts and resources. It's a lot. It's, a, it's not like you're just going there for two weeks or you're going to go there once a year. Like, OK, I live here now. I need to really pattern everything and learn it like the back of my hand yeah you gotta you gotta sweet. figure stuff out on your own yeah that's yeah absolutely i mean well kudos to you for doing that because i feel like you know for for anyone at that age to kind of set it on their own especially across country away from everyone they know everything they know and just be like ah we'll figure it out right like that's yeah grit wing it yeah grit. yeah <laughs> no pun intended there wing it um so you said you had, um, you know, like when you transferred from Finley up to central and you always had this love for, for the resource, for the outdoors, where did that, I mean, did that come from just, you know, your experience with, you know, horses and whatnot, or was there, you know, something else? I mean, you said you didn't start hunting until, you know, early on in your twenties there. So like, yeah. was, was that like from, from your family? Like, did you come from an outdoors family as well? I did definitely. Yeah. I kind of skipped over that. So yeah, my family's very outdoors oriented and we grew up camping, backpacking and angling. My parents were big anglers too. So my dad and mom at the time would hunt, but it just wasn't something I was so busy and so driven with my rodeo career. And just, I was always gone every weekend in a different state traveling all over the place. I didn't really have time for another hobby to dive deep into. Um, so yeah, that, that changed when I changed my career, I obviously started to recognize immediately that hunting was our major tool for wildlife conservation and wildlife management. I knew I wanted to get into it. And I lost my dad at that, about that same time when I transferred to central too, which he would have been that mentor teaching me what to do and what not to do, hopefully <laughs> along the way. So that's, that's another reason I kind of forged my, my own path there and just kind of figured it out. I had some friends helping me out too, but really just kind of self-taught, which is why I probably still make a lot of mistakes. We're human. <laughs> I'm always learning and always a student, but yeah, they really instilled that love of the outdoors and wild places and appreciating nature and paying attention to what's going on around us and why are things behaving the way that they are and why are things placed the way that they are and just kind of reading the landscape and, yeah. and learning the law of the land was was definitely something that was instilled in my brother and I from a young age. So yeah, I just kind of took that and knew there was something I wanted to do with it. Other people knew they wanted to be a biologist or involved in wildlife, you know, from the beginning. And I've got friends that have done that too, but that that wasn't my path. I kind of fell into knowing it was my path eventually. Yeah. yeah. No, 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 it makes total <laughs> no, no, sense. And that's, um, that's like, I, I, interesting is not the right word to use here, but, um, you said you lost your, your father around that age. I lost my, my dad when I was in my mid to late twenties. So I can certainly, yeah. and he was like, I mean, he was that guy for me, right? Like he was the one that, you know, I started hunting and fishing at a young age as well. So, and you know, I was, very big into sports in high school. So like that time came where, you know, I just didn't have a lot of free time, like in the fall, you know, there was, you know, high school football. So Friday nights, you know, that was out Saturday. I was like, yeah, there's no way I'm getting up to do something Saturday morning after a game. So like that was out. And then, you know, the winter comes and I was playing basketball. So like no ice fishing, you know, maybe once in a while I'd get out on a Saturday with him and ice fish. Um, but you know, prior to that, it was a lot of like we had a bird dock, so we would do upland bird hunting, you know, or when I was even younger than that, like probably like 10, 12, 13 years old, 
you know, we would waterfowl hunt and then it got into, you know, deer hunting. Cause that was just, I mean, it's kind of a Michigan tradition. Well, right? do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it got into that. But then like once high school came, like, I don't want to say everything came to a screeching halt, but it became so far down the list of priorities to do that. I didn't like, I don't want to say I lost the love for it, but it was just, I kind of didn't prioritize it and then got into college and played a sport in college. So like no time at all there and then got out of college. And that's when I think I started to realize like, oh man, like I really miss doing these things. And it was probably, oh shoot, three or four years after I graduated college when he passed. So like all of a sudden, all these things I took for granted growing up and even into my early adult life with, hey, just call the old man, like, hey, got a question for you. Or he would call me be like, hey, we're going to be here this weekend. Do you want to come meet us? Like we're going to hunt or we're going to fish or something like that. And then all of a sudden that's gone. Right. And it's like, oh shit, now I got to learn all this stuff on my own. I got to figure things out for myself. Like time to stand on your own two feet here and, and figure it out. And it was really tough for me for a while. Like I, I really kind of use the outdoors as like this, this healing mechanism, right? Like when that happened, did you go through that same type of thing? Yeah. You just gave me goosebumps. So cheers to our dads. Yeah. You know, I'm, absolutely. I'm sorry to hear that you've gone through that, but at the same time, it's kind of humbling and I don't talk about it a lot. So it's kind of interesting that it did come up. Um, but yeah, you're, you're not alone in that. Yeah. That's exactly what it was, Marcus. And I guess I haven't been able to really put that into words now that I think about it, but that's, that was that time of my life, right? We, we had to grow up pretty quick and figure things out. And it was, it was a really hard time for me yeah. and I was trying to excel and be the top of my class and crush it. But it, I took a nosedive for probably a good semester there. And luckily I had some professors that knew I had more ability than what I was expressing at the yeah. time. And that I had some opportunities that, that would come up and they kind of helped guide me along too. And my brother was there, which I'm really thankful for. I don't know how I would have done it probably without him. He was at central. Um, but yeah, that's, that was that, that was that place where you do, you kind of go and you find yourself and you question everything and you get angry and upset all the and time. try to figure out all the whys and, yeah. and you and, push yourself to just be like, all right, I'm going to be this person. I'm going to do these things that mean a lot to me. And that's your way of connecting back to them. Right. And that's, yeah, no, it absolutely is. And I've had some conversations similar to this with guests on my other podcasts in the past where they've kind of gone through like traumatic life experiences and like the, the outdoors, like the woods, like it just has like this healing property that if you haven't been through something and, and had the outdoors to kind of lean on, it's really hard to, to put into words to explain to someone. But like, man, I know like I was in the, I was in a tree stand last night. Right. And you just start thinking back to when you were a kid, yeah. you know, and I remember I like just this, I mean, this is 24 hours ago. Well, a little more. I, was that full draw on this deer and I let down. It just didn't, it just didn't feel right. It wasn't the deer I wanted to shoot. And mm -hmm. like, all I remember do like think as soon as I let down and the deer walked off, I remember thinking like, man, how cool would it be to like call my dad after this? And be like, Oh, you're never going to guess what happened. Oh, yeah. yeah. And just like share and yeah. recap the experience. And that's, you know, it's sad and it's, it's okay. You know, I've, it's been like 12 or 13 years now. So like, I've certainly mm -hmm. had plenty of time to process everything and, and deal with it. And yeah, like, like you said, there was a long time where like, I didn't talk about it. I didn't want to talk about it. Right. Like I was angry all the time, like in a dark yeah. place and you know, you just, you lean on good people. Right. And Absolutely. you pull yourself out of it. And you know, sometimes I would look around and be like, I know there's people going through a lot worse shit than I am right now. So it's For like, sure. 
you know, we're, we're lucky. Yeah. You know, and it's, I'm thankful and thankful for you too, that we, there's someone we still wanted to call that we would have shared that experience with yeah. just to have that in itself too, I think is, is pretty incredible. Like you wanted to call your dad immediately when you had a, an experience that didn't necessarily even equivalent to, that's not a word, <laughs> come to a, a harvesting an animal. It's just that experience that that whole process that you went through, which is kind of like evolution of a hunter, I think as well, too. I think that last one, people always talk about it. That last one though, is like sharing your story and sharing that experience with others is that, that key. Yeah. I think, I think, I think that's kind of like the, the, the natural progression, right? Like when you first start off, like whether it's fishing or hunting, like you want to catch a ton of fish or you want to shoot a bunch of birds or you want to shoot the biggest buck or whatever it is. Right. Because, you kind of want to like beat the chest a little bit be like, see, I can do this too. And then you reach a certain point where you're like, this is such a great thing. Like, this is so much fun. Like I want to get other people involved, right? You want to see, yes. you want to experience that the first time for them, like, you know, whether it's shooting a bird or, or shooting a buck or catching a, you know, a trout on a fly rod or something like that. Like you want to, you want to see someone else do that because you want to kind of live vicariously through them all over again. Absolutely. And, uh, yeah. And I feel like that's kind of where I'm at now. Like, I just, like, I'm always asking my friends who don't, you know, deer hunt or anything like that. Like, Hey, if you want to go, like, I'm more than happy to take you. Like sit with, we can, you know, we can sit in a box blind together, you know, during rifle season for crying out loud. Like we'll shoot a doe. Like we'll make it very easy on you. I promise. And you know, no one's taken me up on the offer yet, but <laughs> I'm going to keep asking. They're like, no, you just watch deer now. <laughs> you get all teary eyed watching a deer yeah yeah (laughs) no i i totally agree and it's the same way for me and i'm sorry i'm totally joking with you um yeah it's it's just getting people out which is kind of interesting i think we touched on some of that before too when you were talking about you were in high school and college and had a lot of things going on life is busy Mm -hmm. you're involved in a ton of stuff growing up like so hard being a teenager is so difficult and, and really uh, unique in, in its own experiences. I think um, there's a lot of people I've heard conversations about just R3 and how, you know, are we failing? Are we succeeding? Are we really recruiting new hunters? Are we moving the needle at all? And the biggest conversation seems to, in a, some conferences and other conver- like groups I've been a part of, comes back to that. Like, are we targeting the right age demographics there? Are we, do we really want to target young people because they're going to drop off for a while while they're in high school and maybe in college too? Some do, some don't. Yeah. So then it's like, oh, maybe we only target adult onset hunters and maybe that's our, our cue and they'll, you know, kind of share within their own groups or their families and I don't know, continue to kind of spread their, their interest that way. But it's, it's fascinating. It's a piece of the puzzle. I don't think we figured out yet, but I think you hit the nail on the head not to go backwards in our conversation, but I thought that was interesting because a lot of people go through that too. Yeah. Well, it's, you kind of brought up a good point there too, with trying to figure out like, what is the best kind of demographic to approach? Because I mean, I feel like I'm on my other podcast kind of talking about the (laughs) conservation side, but that's okay. This is, I think this is super important. Um, because I think if you do target that younger generation, like at least you're instilling in the, in them at a young age that hopefully, even if you don't kind of see, I don't know if the results are, is the right word, but if you don't see that kind of immediate like growth from that younger demographic, once they hit like that 16, 17, 18, you know, year old time frame, I think at least when they get to be an adult, like 
the foundation is already laid, right? Like it's already, even if it's deep yeah. down inside, like it's already there. And a lot of times, at least in my experience, it's like, it just takes one thing to like respark that, right? Like yeah, you make a new friend. Of, yeah. Your, your new doormate in college, you know, grew up somewhere like, you know, hunting was life for them. Right. And they just decided to go to college. And now all of a sudden on the weekends, you know, they're waterfowl hunting or something like that. So sometimes I think if it's there, it just takes something small to kind of reignite it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's interesting too. And that's, I think that's what it was for me. I had friends in some of my classes that were going turkey hunting and I was like, man, can you guys take me duck hunting and show me how to turkey hunt? And it took a few key like lessons or, you know, just some, some tips and going out with them. And I was like, I got this. I totally got it. And I took it and ran and harvested my first ducks, my first turkey, my first deer, like all of that. And the first year I started hunting and I was like, I'm going to learn everything about this. And at the same time was diving into like the biology and nature of all of these species and their habitats and landscapes and putting it all together from an ecological perspective. So it's kind of cool. Like I, I felt like it was the right time to start learning about the species I was pursuing, but it's, it was always birds for me. I mean, I love big game hunting. I love deer hunting, of course. And I've even fallen back from duck hunting a little bit too, but yeah, it, it definitely started out. And maybe that's why, like, I don't, I don't wonder if, if some of my friends would have been like hardcore deer and elk hunters, if I would have gone a different route, right. I don't know. That was the hook for me though. I was, was bird hunting and well, everything else kind of fell into place. But let me ask you this, when it comes to, you know, like that love for bird hunting, do you think that's because like, there's that companionship with the dog, that like relationship Hell with yeah. the dog? That is it. That's everything to me. So I'm a childless naysayer, admittedly, and I'm not going to even reference how old I am, but I'm not 40 yet. But yeah, it, it totally is. It is. It, it's a it's a bond. I can't even really put into words. Um, and it's funny because some of my colleagues, like they've got they're just family people and they've got amazing families and the dog's a dog. And to me, I'm always sharing stories about the dogs and crazy experiences I've had and weird, funny things. And sometimes I think they think I'm a little weird. <laughs> Like that we don't always see eye to eye on it, but then like uh, the other part of the dog community is like, I totally get you. Like, I know exactly where you're coming from and why these things are so important to you and these experiences and these moments. Um, yeah. So that's it. That's definitely it for me. It took me a while to get my first bird dog though, because I was such a gypsy in my career moving all over. Now that I think about it, like I should have had a dog the whole time because I was you know, even just like bird hunting out West too, without a dog. And that was, I can't believe I even made that happen. It's tough. That's Not getting people that, yeah, just kick dirt around. But yeah, it was it was hard. So yeah, it's definitely that is the biggest thing for me, and it always will be. And I hope I have a house of fifty million setters for the rest of my life. <laughs> probably why. Probably why I'm unmarried without kids too. So we'll just keep it at that. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. Throw a couple kids in that mix because we have <laughs> we have a uh, we have a she's almost to uh, our oldest lab, and then we have a. God, what is he? Eleven week, eleven week old out lab right now too. Yes. Plus, I've got a five year old and a three year old. So yeah, like I it's it. it's chaos nonstop <laughs> around here now. Two kids, two dogs. Like people are like, you really are a family of six. I'm like, yeah, no, we really oh. are. Like not four, we are six. <laughs> we are six deep. And but yeah, that that relationship with the dog. And when um, we bought the our first lab, um, my well. She was my girlfriend at the time. She's my wife now. We we bought a lab. She was still in college. I was just a year year or so out, and we bought a lab. And of course, like when I bought it, where I was like, oh, we have this big grandiose plan. Like I'm going to start waterfowl hunting again. And this is, goes all the way back because like my dad was sick at this time. He he was still around, but he was sick. So I'm like, oh, this is like 
a great a great kind of way to continue to like live that that previous life and life happens you get busy i was mid 20s right so it's like probably not the best time to like take on that responsibility not to just have a dog but then to like train a good bird dog right like a good good hunting dog and that just didn't happen so but she was a great house dog i mean we just she just passed away uh earlier this spring and she was 14 like i mean she was Oh, a trooper. Yeah. Yeah. Especially for a lab for a bigger dog, 14. Yeah. yeah. And then we, um, when she was getting old, we got, uh, uh, another female lab and I had the same plan and it just, uh, she just turned into <laughs> be a really good house dog. <laughs> they so, still have those instincts. You know, I bet if you took them out in the marsh or out in the woods, like, you'd, oh, you'd she's, be surprised, right? and it's funny, like she's so much more our 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 two-year-old dog now so much more athletic and just like such a hard charger like just like playing fetch in the yard i mean she is an absolute savage and like i'm always kicking myself like you probably should have done a little bit more i mean she's a great dog but just i've just never you know took her out but then when we got the it's actually from the same parents her brother um that is the goal so i've already started training him now so i'm hoping that by next year this time we're out chasing ducks and that's, that's the plan. Yeah. That's the goal. I mean, two years old really isn't too late. I think your biggest, the best thing you can do is just keep her athletic and in shape and just do some drills. I mean, I, I think at two, you'd still be surprised. Like they it's in their genetic makeup, yeah. it's in their blood. They know what they're doing. And it sounds like you found the right, what breeder did you go through? for uh, your life, if so you don't mind me No, no, not at all. Um, so it's actually, it was a, a guy I had on the podcast on my other podcast. He okay. lives out in, in northern Pennsylvania, and he's got two uh, fox red labs. He's got a male and a female, so we got a. Uh, so both of mine are, are red labs. Um, oh, that's cool. Yeah. Oh, they're. I remember when I first saw the. You know, like we like our previous dog was a black lab. I had a yellow lab growing up. My wife had a black lab growing up. So like when we decided we wanted to get a dog, like a lab was like an easy choice for us. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and then when I saw his, I was like, oh man, red, like beautiful. Yeah, and yeah, like. I just, I love them. I love them. <laughs> They're great dogs. Yeah. Ours, ours fill a void. We, so we actually, I just talked about this. I did, we've got a local radio outdoor radio show here and the Adam Carpenter is the name of the, the gent who's a host and he's a big outdoorsman in the UP. And I actually saw my Facebook post about this and it kind of makes me, I kind of want to mention it. It's just really cool. Like we, so I'm a, I'm setters like till I die. I'm a setter, not, I have two right now. Um, so I've got a five-year-old setter, Chip, and an eight-month-old setter, Clover, who's got some really neat lines and ties to um, Andy Ammon, who is like renowned game bird biologist and ecologist in Michigan. And he started banding Woodcock the, for the first, the first time we were able to ban Woodcock in Michigan with his own setter. So she's got ties back to his dog, which is just special to me. But my better half, Eric, is just Brittany's all the way through and through. Um, so last year we unexpectedly lost his although they're they're all of you know both of our dogs they're just everything to us our four-year-old um dog rusty from a largely unknown gi disease that we scoured the earth in a team of specialists and veterinarians between here in wisconsin trying to identify and had no answers and we were living in veterinary hospitals and staying on the road for weeks at a time eric especially and i would join him when i could and be there um, 
and we still will never know what what caused his decline and what eventually like killed him in the end so i digress um not last weekend but the weekend before was that one year anniversary that we had lost him so october is always kind of hard and it's emotional and yeah it's tough we're always thinking of him and we were we put together a group of our we loaded up our best friends our, our dogs we went out and we planned that we were going to kind of have our shoot a grouse for rusty day in the cover that eric harvested rusty's last burden which you could spend all day in just with different dogs going all day it's an amazing area and eric reloaded some of rusty's ashes into 20 gauge shells that each of us we all had like five each it was heavy eric shot three grouse over his other Brittany aspen in a half hour he was on fire I'm like he's gonna get his limit in an hour which is kind of just crazy to think about <laughs> and you know harvested a few woodcock over her she was on fire like we just knew immediately like we could all feel it it was something bigger was at play he was there with us yeah so that was incredible and then you know we we were just kind of just working each dog so then we we put aspen away and we put clover out she went on point almost immediately we harvested her first grouse with those rusty shells wow. which was so incredible like just an amazing that was her first grouse as an eight month old we've harvested quite a few woodcock over her too she's just turning it on and it's which is so neat but that is a, a special moment with all of our best friends with us and all the dogs like i don't know how i'm ever going to top that kind of a <laughs> a memory with our bird dogs and a hunting experience but well i don't think you need to but, right like yeah. i think like moments like that like it'll live with us forever you know and, yeah yeah and Man, we've gotten into some heavy things tonight. Like, I, know. I did not expect that. <laughs> it's and I think that's why. Like that's just been weighing on my mind this month, and it's it's kind of funny because it encourages us. Like we just like put a hashtag out, like shooter girls for Rusty Day, wanting to hear stories of our friends and you know their memories that they're making with their dogs or their families out in the woods or whatever it may be, even without a dog. Just what do you what are you doing? What are you seeing? Have you harvested any birds? Like we want to hear your story and hear about it. And it just kind of elevates us and keeps that memory alive and keeps us going too. It's really good. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's, yeah. In, in times like that, like that's what you need. Like you need that support system. You need to kind of hear the, the good stories from some friends and, you know, just, you know, people that you maybe follow along with that are, you know, out in the bird woods or, or whatever, just because like it's, it's it, the positive, like good, good vibes only right like that's yep, I, I keep hearing that a lot like good vibes only like that's that's what you need like that's what you need yourself but that's also what you need to surround yourself with if, if you want to yeah, kind of keep so that true. good attitude so true so like I want to we I don't want to say we got ahead of ourselves because I feel like we don't really have a direction we're just kind of shooting from the hip here and this is good going back to to life as a biologist like what's what's probably the most difficult part about that because I mean you're covering some you know, big tracts of land up there in the UP. I mean, I don't know if, I mean, I feel like if you're in Michigan, like you've got an idea, but I mean, I've got friends that have been to the UP like twice in their life, which is a tr tragedy in and of itself. But what's, <laughs> what's the most difficult part about that for you? Like covering that much land, that much area? Um, that that's it, that there's that much land. So yeah, it's, it's remote. So my entire, my commute to the office and my basically my entire work unit, I have zero cell coverage. <laughs> Very, when I say it's rural, when I say rural, it is all forested. There's some parts, I also cover the Garden Peninsula. So we've got some agriculture mixed in there. Um, but it's, yeah, there's no major towns. There's no major residential areas. So 
that makes it tricky. I mean, if you need something like, so there's, there's Manistique, you know, along the South shore, like along, along the North shore of Lake Michigan and Munising isn't far from like the office proper. So if I need something, I'm always kind of like at least an hour away from a creature comfort. Um, yeah, the, the hardest thing, I guess, is just not, you can't really plan your day. You don't know what your day is going to bring. And so it's very unexpected, which I feel like I kind of thrive off of as well. I like just curveballs being thrown at me. It keeps me on my toes. And I don't know, it, it definitely keeps the job interesting because there's always something crazy that's going to pop up. Like today we had to find, we were trying, my colleague and I, at the end of the day, I got a call that so we think a wolf got hit by a car. So we're out trying to find this wolf to potentially dispatch it. It sounds like it was in pretty, pretty poor shape that it wouldn't be able to survive. We weren't sure of what we were running into at that point in time. Um, so it just kind of the unknown is exciting and it keeps us on the edge. Um, so I don't know if it's the hardest part, but I think it's, it's one of the most interesting aspects of the job too. I mean, we're dealing with all uh, with the public, with politics, with disease surveillance, with populations, nuisance wildlife, you know, a lot of issues with, with bears in the area too. Um, the politics of it involving different wildlife management concepts and plans right now is, is its own animal too. So the, the inevitable variability, I think is probably the hardest part. <laughs> and, and that's one that you can't plan for. Right. Like yep. you can't, you can't practice being good at that. Right. Like it's just yeah. one of those things that's there and it's always going to be there. And so, yeah, you can't, you just got to be you know, flexible, I guess is the right word. Like you just got to go with the flow and, and react. You do. And I think there's also another, another set of skills that you definitely have to have and start to work on and hone in and master in the backcountry. Um, you know, a lot of our areas, wilderness area or actual backcountry. If you can't navigate your way around, it's not like I can pull up Onyx. I mean, I've do, I've got an off, you know, an offline map for the unit downloaded, but it, it's not as simple as that when you're in some pretty complex terrain and, you know, you've got rocky outcrops to half my unit is swamp too. Um, so when you're out in varying weather conditions and varying terrain, there's there's definitely another element of survival that goes along with it and i'm not saying it's remote like alaska you know or, or different mountain ranges but it's got its own wilderness component to it too which can be challenging so you know we do a lot of work on snowmobiles as well so if you're out on a sled and you get stuck in the backcountry you're it's on you to figure out how you're going to get out <laughs> we do have 800 radios still um so we can you know help is usually hopefully just a radio beep away um but i think that's that's been difficult too to just learn this unit i'm fairly new to this position still so learning the unit in itself is really difficult because it's so vast. Right. Um, again, yeah, it's Lake Superior to Lake Michigan. Like it's that whole, whole region and it's, it's super wild, but yeah, navigating it and preparing for making sure I'm prepared, <laughs> I guess is the best way to put it. And some of those variable conditions is also really challenging. So what's the most rewarding, what's the most rewarding part of it? So right now I've been involved in some really cool groups internally and externally talking about like my story and my, my journey is into my career and into upland bird hunting and sharing that experience with other, other women, other demographics, other groups. I think being able to give back to, and still stay plugged into our hunting community directly as an employee of the state is, is for me the most rewarding because I've, 
obviously it's not an eight to five job for me. It's, it's a career. It's an every day. It's 24 seven, no matter, I like I might come home, but I'm still available if something comes up. So it's important. The resource is important to me, but being able to give back to other people and help guide their path into enjoying the resources that we have, I think is the most rewarding. So being an employee of the state gives me a different platform to be able to do that and tap into different groups and work with local, um, local conservation organizations or local units of government schools. Like I'm helping our conservation officers teach hunter safety. It, oh, nice. Just the amount of little things that I'm plugged in and yeah, just, just from the position itself and being able to communicate how important it is um, or how I'm here to help other people along that journey is I think the most rewarding part. Yeah. Well, unclear, but <laughs> no, that's very clear. I mean, and I think, that you offer a unique perspective as well. I mean, given the fact that much of your experience is self-taught, you know, like you said, the fact that you didn't start until later on in life. And, you know, there's, I would imagine like, you know, looking at like teaching hunter safety, for example, like you're probably teaching a bunch of kids who have probably already been using firearms. They've probably yeah. already spent more than one day. Yeah, and through. <laughs> yeah exactly. Right. Like I, I almost forget like what podcast I'm on. Like, right. Like people know. <laughs> People know if you're in rural oh, Michigan, yeah. like you've shot a gun well before hunter safety. I can promise you that <laughs> you drove a truck, you yeah. probably have a shotgun in your hand. Yeah. 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 At 12 years old. Yeah, exactly. I can't remember who I was talking to. First bus ride at seven. And... Yeah. <laughs> I was talking to a, a gentleman on, on last week's episode and we were just, he was from the UP, uh, born and raised. So when him and I were talking, he was like, man, like people would come to school with like shotguns in the truck. I'm like, you know, that probably, we're just talking about that. <laughs> yeah. Like that sounds vaguely familiar. And I, I can't remember for sure if people did, but I know I've seen deer in the back of trucks at high school when I was in high school, yeah. like people would, if they had like that flex time in the morning, right. Like they could, you know, they didn't come into like 10 o'clock or something like that. And yeah, like, and then it was like a big deal. Right. So then whoever, you know, there were certain teachers who were hunters too, like, they would drag the class out there like, oh, let's go look at so-and-so's buck in the back of his truck, right? And like, <laughs> that's how you spent half a class. And like, I miss that. I miss that kind of thing. Like where my kids go to, where my daughter goes to school now, like, I mean, even like the neighborhood I live in now, there's... You're not getting opening day off. <laughs> no, no, I'm not. But I do have one other hunter uh, in my in my uh, neighborhood, which is great. Like he was just actually uh, out in Wyoming. He shot an antelope, a mule deer, and a turkey. Uh, yeah, while he yeah. was out there. Yeah. So he's like sending me pictures while I'm out there. I'm like, I don't know if I hate you or love you right now. Like <laughs> you're making me so jealous while I'm sitting here, like, you know, not doing anything at the time when he was sending me these pictures. But yeah, that's, um, no, I think the perspective that you bring to like those students, I think is, is one that probably, um, hits home for him a little bit more. It's fun. I mean, our COs are, <clears throat> you and I were talking about just our our age group and things that are just so cool about the gnarly people in Michigan and what they're doing from a conservation perspective and within the hunting community, you know, no matter, no matter what, what group of, or what, I don't know, direction of hunting you prefer. What species or folks. Yeah. Folks you, you hang out with and share with. It's kind of the same within this like group of biologists, conservation professionals, conservation officers, like you name it. There's a whole group of us together too that are just everyone gets along really well. And our, our conservation officer officers right now are the same age and I just relate to them so much and they're so personable and they're so rad. <laughs> like they're just doing really cool things and you know, pursuing like one of them's just like 
I could learn so much by the way that he spot and stalks these monster bucks in the UP. Granted, he gets probably permission on some some primo properties that I probably wouldn't wouldn't be allowed to investigate. But you know, just things like that. And seeing them teach this class, they're so passionate about it. They absolutely love these kids, and it's really fun to just see how sharp the kids, first of all, already are about conservation in the first place. Right. And the fact that yeah, they're they're handling firearms like I know some back in the day, my better half and his friends would tell me like they brought their shotguns on the bus. Like they have been handling them. They've been out hunting under like <laughs> literally <laughs> what different times we live in now. Yeah. It still happens in some schools up here, but they, um, they've already been hunting or they've done like the mentorship or the apprentice. And now like they're getting this like next leg up where they can go out on their own. And just to see these, like the two officers that or Sergeant and officer, I should say that, that I work with in my unit now, I don't know, just kind of feed off of the energy and intelligence of these kids is just amazing in itself. And I get to touch on like the last part of the book too, that's kind of drives home the conservation message. But we talk about Aldo Leopold and we talk about kind of the roots. And if I'm not too rushed at the end before they take their test, I really try to make it <laughs> like make an impression on them. So I hope, I hope so. I hope it's impactful. I think more than anything, they appreciate getting to just have a comfortable environment where they can handle a lot of different firearms. They can hear different stories from our conservation officers that are real life, legit, usually bad experiences that yeah. you're learning a lesson from. There's usually a reason behind every lesson. That's what they tell us in like wildland fire too. It's like, there's a reason for every, every mistake or every regulation or every safety protocol that we have. And usually it has a person's name behind it. So they're getting that real world experience and it's eye opening for them, but I, it catches their attention. And I think they really just grasp that too. So I don't know. Yeah. No, I digress, that's... but <laughs> Why is it, do you think people sleep on Michigan so much as, as kind of this, like, I mean, I, well, let me back up. I think that people sleep on Michigan in terms of what we have to offer in terms of the outdoors, all the different activities. And I don't know why that is because you've said it like Michigan is rad, right? Like there's so many like awesome things to do. And like, and so many people don't even get to experience like the UP which mm-hmm. is so true. It's tragic. It is. So anyone out there listening, get your butt to the UP. It, you know, it's kind of amazing to me. I lived in Wyoming and I lived in North Dakota and I still came back. My family was here, but I still came back. I had always wanted to live out West. That was my dream. And in some aspects, it's still something that I, I can see in my future, but the resources that we have here are just, I can't put my finger on all of it. I mean, the water for one. Our, our rivers, our trout streams, the Great Lakes in general, you can't top it too. But yeah, I think recreational opportunities in this state are really hard to, to be beat. You know, they really are. It's unreal. Yeah. So I, yeah, I don't know. If, I don't know if we really get downplayed. I think, I mean, for grouse and woodcock hunting, we're a destination state, hands down. Well, we yeah. have more woodcock in Michigan than any other state in the country too, and beyond more woodcock too. But yeah, yeah I so I mean, that's... Go ahead. No, I was going to say, when you said like a destination, I had, uh, I hate to keep like always referencing my other podcasts. I've just, I've done a lot more of them, but a guy from West Virginia who him and his buddies come to Michigan every year, like that's their big, like bird hunt, right? Like they come to Michigan to do that. I'm like, really? He's like, yeah. He's like, Michigan's great. I'm like, okay. All right. I like it. And yeah, he actually hunts. Like he doesn't even go to the UP. Like he's, I think like northern like northwest lower michigan i think where he said he goes um but yeah like that's i do like that and maybe like i'm just looking at it from like a whitetail perspective right like even though like 
big bucks hit the ground in Michigan every single oh, yeah. year, right? Like even up here, like it blows my mind. It blows my mind what what caliber of whitetails are being harvested up here. Well, there's just I think people get like under- yeah, I think people get like <laughs> super discouraged because the UP is just so vast, right? Like it's so big. They're like like people are afraid to like hunt the big woods because they big just woods bucks and big woods turkeys like. The turkeys in the woods up here are totally different than southern Michigan. Like it's it's a, just a lower in general. It's a totally different ball game. I'm still adapting to that myself, trying to figure that out. But like, yeah, do, I do, agree with you. I mean, go oh, go ahead. I don't want to kill your thought there. <laughs> no, I was just gonna ask. Like, do you think it's just like a different like pressure on the birds up there, or just like not the human pressure on birds up there that there is up here? Like, oh no, no, I don't think it's that at all. I mean, birds are gonna be pressured. You know, it it depends. Boot leather kills birds. I always tell people, I mean, you can go, you can go any direction in this state and get into birds that probably haven't heard a bell or seen a dog or heard a shot. It, it just depends on how much you want to put into it, how much you want it, you know, and how far you want to go and what your ability is, I guess, if, if it comes to that. But the interesting thing about Michigan and our resources here, especially from a wildlife management perspective is we have to work for it. Wyoming, they're doing some things. They're not managing their forests or their grasslands. I mean, a little bit. They're managing species populations and managing the public, and they're managing, you know, harvest. Here, we have so much more of a hands-on, we have to have a hands-on approach to managing the landscape for wildlife, or we lose it. Look at Ohio and in Indiana. When I worked for Rough Grouse Society, we literally petitioned their NRC um, to list rough grouse as state endangered Really? because they're not harvesting timber. They're not putting logs on trucks. And in Michigan, we're so, I'm so thankful to have a forest-based economy here because that is literally key to managing this entire state for wildlife. It's one, one piece of the puzzle anyway, a really big piece of the puzzle, you know, not, not considering waterfowl and other, you know, other species to our other grassland dependent species. Um, yeah. It's, it's interesting. So, I think we have to work really hard at managing our wildlife here and it makes it tricky. And there are some really vast areas and some deep, deep woods that, yeah, it's, it's hard to figure out, but I've got, I've got friends here and it, it is a little bit more of, I shouldn't probably say this, but I think the UP is kind of a slopey, a slopey, I can't talk a sleeper. I'm not going to go as far as to say trophy whitetail region, but there's some crazy deer being harvested up here. You might not see them all the time. A lot of them are on camp walls, um, and a lot of them are more spot and stock style hunting, but there's some people crushing it and really getting into just some gnarly deer up here. So anyway, yeah, I think from a management span- standpoint, we have to work for it. Um, the wildlife doesn't just appear and it, not that it does in other states. I'm not downplaying any other state. Obviously we have to work hard for wildlife management across the board from numerous different perspectives, but if we didn't manage our forest the way we do here in the landscape we do in Michigan, I, I think we'd be in a totally different ball game, yeah. you know, like some of our surrounding neighbors. So, and as a hunting public, I think we have to work at it differently to have success with those species. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, it does. I had, um, I talked to a woman, Cindy Stites out of Indiana. Yeah, I know Cindy. Yeah. Cindy's an app. <laughs> she's, a, she's so great. She's great. She is. And she was telling me that like, speaking of like, you know, the bird speed, like different bird species that, as recent as I think she said 2014, they were still reintroducing turkey into Indiana, which just like blows my mind. Yeah, that that's... and that's a huge conservation success story in Michigan. Yeah, yeah, From like the 70s, I want to say the 80s, I think. 
like less than 10 years ago, they're still like putting birds yeah. into the state, which like, I think a lot of people, and maybe like, I think maybe like the younger generation, unless you're like really tied into kind of the conservation space and the conservation world. But otherwise you just like think turkeys have always been here and there's always been a lot of them, right? Like, especially yeah. come springtime when, when you see turkeys all over the place, it's like, yeah, like we've got a plethora of turkeys, right? And it's like, that's not always the case, right? And I think, you know, if you've not done your homework, you don't know that. But, you know, like I said, eight years ago to still have to reintroduce them, like that's, you know, just to the south of us, that's that's pretty crazy to think about. It is. And eight years ago, we didn't even have them in every county in Michigan. I think just recently, within the past, I want to say three years, and don't quote me on that, um, we now have turkeys present in every county in Michigan. I think Iron County was one of the, like, the holdouts potentially. Um, Western UP was one of the holdouts, but now they are present in every county. And it's interesting. I mean, we with just the small amount of people that do fill out the turkey harvest surveys, Onagan is getting like 100% satisfaction and harvest success for wow. turkeys in the UP, which <laughs> yeah. is crazy to me in the first place, too, because it's they're hard to hunt here. They really are. It's a, it's a different ballgame. And I like I would pride myself like I'd harvest an awesome bird every year. I'd guide people all the time. I had like tons of spots everywhere, like 20 different spots. And like Mount Pleasant when I was in college too, like I know how to hunt birds, but up here it is a different ball game. So it's humbling. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like that's, a, that's the best way to describe hunting in general. It's humbling. Yeah, for sure. It's oh, for very sure. humbling, especially yeah. like, and I feel like, like as a, as a bird hunter, as a, a passionate bird hunter that you are, like there's gotta be days where it's just like, are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah. You gotta laugh about it. Right. Like there were days, even early season, like holy fun. I couldn't hit a bird to save my life like opening weekend, I'm like, well, I'm not getting a bird on opener, I guess. <laughs> just you know, wasting shells. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've gone through a ton of shells, but man, we've gotten into so many birds. It's a stellar bird season statewide. I mean, the UP, I'm hearing just great reports. We're in the central UP. So, you know, the, the areas that we're covering are, are really phenomenal. Getting a ton of shots at birds. <laughs> we're bagging quite a few and having a great opportunity to harvest birds, but we're missing a lot as well. And I, now this year, I'm just like laughing. I literally had a woodcock kick the barrel of my gun over my puppy. <laughs> she went on point and like the ferns were seriously like my shoulder height. I'm five nine. Like they were up to my shoulders. I kid you not this year, this snow we had, this blizzard just knocked them down, I'm sure. So this puppy, you know, she's under these ferns. I know she's on point. The bell stopped. She's not moving. We do have a GPS on her too. So we're like, she's somewhere right here. I'm not going to look at the handheld. I'm just going to start trying to find a little white body somewhere. And I see her on point and I walk in. Unfortunately, she was pointing, I think she was pointing right at me. So I, I didn't realize it until I saw her that I was walking in the complete wrong way and was walking right into her. And the woodcock gets up and hits the barrel of my gun. And I like, I can't even like swing around in time to get a good shot at it. Eric drops it immediately. I'm like, thank you. <laughs> like it literally hit my gun. You just slowed it down <laughs> for him. Yeah. Like you just have to laugh at stuff now. <laughs> Um, no, that's a good story. I like that. All right, Heather, just a few more things and I'll let you get back out of here. So tell me about this, uh, experience you had, I think it was last summer where you got to, uh, take a certain somebody out, uh, grouse hunting. Oh, that was two was that, years. Was it that long ago? Was it, it two years year? ago? Oh my gosh. I'm not even, I don't even recall. It was last year. Um, so we, yeah, I got a really crazy call. No, it was two years ago. I was with um, my family fishing, actually, salmon fishing and trout fishing in the Lachinos. 
with a group of friends and I got a, like a random call from someone in Florida wanting to know. And I answered it oddly enough, which I never do. I scream my phone calls like no other. <laughs> and, um, a girl had introduced herself being from Nat Geo and asked me if I wanted to guide Gordon Ramsay on a woodcock hunt in the UP. And I was like, hell yes. Who is this? Yeah. <laughs> Am I being like, pranked? And also, can I call you back? Cause I'm on vacation with my family. <laughs> So like we had a good conversation and I was really excited about it. I'm like, absolutely. Yes. Like, let me get in touch with whoever I need to, when I return back and they put me in touch. I got on a call with the producers and they wanted to originally do this shoot. They were excited about Woodcock because it's a unique table fair, um, which they're amazing. Some people won't eat them, but if you know how to prepare them, our friends have all fallen in love with it because we just crush it with that recipe. I was telling you that I would never tell anyone. <laughs> um, so we have an opportunity to, take Gordon out, which he's been hunting, but it's for his show Uncharted on Nat Geo. And in speaking to the producer, I was like, I'm, I'm happy to do this, but I really want to be able to take you into our covers, like areas I know, like the back of my hammer, I know we can have a really great hunt, get into a lot of birds this time of year. We had like three weeks, not even to plan this all out. Um, and also to have Eric join me because I need someone to handle, to dog handle while I'm, they wanted me to deliver a pretty hefty conservation message for okay. the Disney crowd. Cause Disney is owner and proprietor of Nat Geo, which I was happy to do, but that's a lot with a camera crew trying to guide someone through a really dense Aspen stand. Talk about conservation. Keep an eye on where your dogs are at. Try to harvest them. Like it was, yeah. there's a lot going on. So I was like, I need some help and I want to do it somewhere where I know where, you know, we, we won't run into other folks and we'd have some good success. So they agreed to all of that. We kind of put this little dossier together with our experience, like a portfolio, shot it their way, worked with their safety crew. They came out and kind of did a trial run with us. They wanted our first, so season opened September 15th for grouse. They wanted our first, like that weekend, they asked us to send grouse and woodcock to them. Although woodcock hadn't opened until later on. They wanted to trial. Um, okay, so no. On opener, it was the following weekend, Woodcock had opened. They wanted our first grouse and woodcock that we harvested so far to trial it with their lab, their culinary team in California. So we begrudgingly and sadly like gave them our first grouse and woodcock that we had harvested. And I was like, Eric, it's worth it. A five-star Michelin chef is going to make this for us. It's okay. Yeah. It'll come back <laughs> to us like full circle, which I keep saying today. And it did. It was really cool. They, they fell in love with the woodcock. Like we plucked a few, which I realized I'm not a patient enough person to ever do that. Um, we set up the date. And we basically were given um, a whole week before that we came in and shot with him the episode to harvest 10 woodcock for them. We had like five days to do it. And at the time we had, yeah, three dogs. We had Rusty, Aspen, and Chip. So Eric and I were like, okay, some people don't shoot 10 woodcock in a season. We're like, we can do this though. So it was a grind for like five days. Luckily the weather was perfect. The birds were in, they didn't skip over us in September. We still had resident birds on the ground. We had a great opportunity. We got all 10 birds. They lead us into this experience and Gordon was amazing. So like you literally just kind of show up and he just drives in and it's all kind of for TV and they play it up. We met him actually the day before at the cook on Presque Isle on Black Rocks because we had a rain delay. So we actually hunted with him after they shot the dinner with everyone that like yeah. culinary dinner, like the culmination dinner where he and James just cooked everything for us. So we had an opportunity to get out in the woods with him finally after like working through this all week. And he was super charming. He did not want to put a hat on because he's an amazing hair. He is literally like 6'10". I don't even know. He's, he's a very tall dude. But he was telling us stories about his family and his dogs, his son in the British military across the pond. 
He's got like cocker spaniels. I mean, he enjoys hunting. I've seen the show quite a few times too. Like I know he's, he's in tune with conservation and he knows his way around a firearm and, you know, in different interesting circumstances. So he was a really good sport about walking through the woods, especially like a young Aspen stand, just getting the shit kicked out of him yeah, for, sure. for a while to chase woodcock, no less. So we were pretty confident that we were going to get into him and have some good shot opportunities. And he, when we did get into woodcock, he would just drop the F-bomb immediately every time. He was saying <laughs> like F word left and right. So there's me, him and Eric, Eric's handling the dogs. Like we're all carrying shotguns. We were like, all right, we all at least need to carry a gun. So we harvest a bird that isn't going to get away from us. And then there's like four or five camera crew, producer, audiographer, <laughs> or audiologist behind us. What was, what's the sound guy? Sound guy. Yeah, sound guy. Yeah. Sound guy. That's the technical term. But there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of pressure on us, and the dogs could feel that energy too. So it was not our best dog work by any means. Um, but I'm glad we did it. We did eventually get him into some birds, and then it was then and then it's done. We thought we would have like four hours to hunt with them and shoot the shit and. It was really just a quick and dirty, like, okay, we got the footage. He quasi, like a bird went up and I was like, Gordon, I, the dog went on point, Aspen went on point. I guided him as to where he needed to walk in within that scent cone for the bird to flush. And as he's walking in, the bird gets up. He hesitated. Eric shoots, then Gordon shoots. Now I played it up as sportsmanship. I'm like, congrats, Gordon. Like, I think Eric's BB actually hit the bird first. <laughs> but we were like, put a bird in your bag. So it was good. Like he loved it. He was obsessed with the dogs. He loved woodcock hunting in general. Um, he said he'd like to do it again. So hopefully he pursues it and, and goes after it. But yeah, then they, they put us out on Black Rocks on Presque Isle, which is one of our favorite places in Marquette too. And there's drones flying over and we have a really interesting meal with some, some characters. They really tried to find people in the UP that had some charisma. <laughs> um, if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about too. So we were laughing. It was a, it was a great experience and, it was really cool. We had a fun little viewing party here afterwards. And I don't know, hopefully if I get a random call next time, Gordon's just going to want to come back to the UP and bird hunt. We'll see what happens. But he was really charming. Like I totally had a little minor crush on him. I'm like, he was amazing. Like what a cool guy. And that's awesome. You no, know, it's the meal was the meal of a lifetime. I still think we prepare woodcock better than him though. And James Regato, which James is an amazing chef, but yeah, Word. it was, I'm going to put that on the record. Yeah, it was kind of funny, like James made, so they went up to the Keweenaw and they got thimbleberry jam with the monks, like that he, that was one of the ingredients. Cause the gist of the show is he's got to meet locals and sources ingredients. Yeah. So he was diving shipwrecks. He went to the monks to get jam. He got smoked fish from Captain Ron and Munising. He went with us to get woodcock. You know, he's doing a little bit of everything and he's mountain biking. He's taking it all in as a youper. And like his big question was, am I going to be accepted as a youper? Well, I'm apparently never going to be either, but you know, unless you're born here, yeah, we're all to. trolls. Yep, exactly. So, <laughs> but he was a really good sport about all of it and fell in love with the UP. Um, so yeah, by, by the end of it, he's trying to figure out, um, you know, you have to kind of gauge and judge each chef's dish and I'm a total foodie and I really wanted to be the one that kind of spoke for our dishes and shared the memory, like where you can really feel the memory of the hunt and this woodcock dish, but I didn't get a chance to say any of that fluff. Because there was guys that were like, I'm not a sauce guy. And it was like a puree. They'd be like, I'm not a sauce guy. I didn't like the sauce. <laughs> they inhaled their food. Yeah, shut up and eat your food. On the first course. <laughs> yeah, I, I had a totally different vision of how the dinner was going to go. But nonetheless, a great experience. At the end of it, I told James Regato that I wanted to live in his cornbread. <laughs> I'm so weird. I'm sure he remembers that. <laughs> the look his girlfriend gave me. <laughs> I was like, sorry. Like that came out a little... 
that was a little Heather for you. I'm sorry, guys. But it was really, it was like the best cornbread I've ever had. So. Well, there you go. It was a, yeah, it was a fun experience all the way around. So. No, that's. Came out of nowhere, but. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, I mean, that's totally awesome because, you know, just think about, you know, growing up, you know, in Southeast Michigan and then, <laughs> you know, not, and then you're guiding, you know, five-star Michelin award-winning or James Beard award-winning, whatever. You're, you're world-class chefs. You're guiding world-class chefs on on a woodcock hunt in the UP and with your dogs and and everything like that in your spots. I mean, that's 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 super cool. That That's really cool. It was. It was. A, yeah, we're, we're so honored. It's a funny story. It was quirky and interesting and really fascinating to see. How, like they were in Abu Dhabi the week before to see how the, a production like that is put on. Was it really impressive? And the crew was really just amazing to work with. And I still really don't know how, I mean, I think it, it honestly culminated from those experiences too. Like I guided years in a row and um, won quite a few other competition hunts for like the National Grass and Woodcock Hunt with RGS and guided other areas like had raffled guided hunts that I would do for RGS chapters and stuff like that. So I was guiding off and on and really enjoyed it. Um, and I think at that point in time, I was kind of at this point in my career with RGS where I was pretty visible whether or not I wanted to be, you know, we were, RGS was doing some different things. It was really cool. We're kind of changing the game. There's a lot of female biologists working for them. And we were just kind of, kind of at this pinnacle point where we were getting out there and doing really cool things. And I think people were just like, Hey, we, we might want to be a part of that, or we might want to experience that with you and let's, let's do it and show us where you live and what you do. So it was a cool opportunity. They didn't use any of that conservation message I delivered though. Like it was total a hunting for conservation. Like the whole spiel like i yeah. fucked it up it was it was poetry <laughs> they didn't even use any of it which is totally fine with me but <laughs> just waxing poetic about conservation and they just like scrapped the whole thing yeah yeah just way to go bounce. way to go disney it was so good though yeah really thankful for that hopefully something else uh cool like that pops up in life but no we're we're pretty honored from that experience yeah no that's great all right other one i really appreciate it but where can uh, people follow along with the uh, the bird dog adventures and, and everything else that you got going on? Oh yeah, that's fun. So um, I am on Instagram under Heather double underscore Shaw and on Facebook too. And it's really weird to look up your name on Facebook. There's thousands of people that have your same yeah, name. Right? So look for one with Hunter Orange, I guess, Blaze Orange and a dog and you'll find me. <laughs> that's the right one. All right. Well, Heather, thank you a ton for joining me. I really enjoyed the conversation kind of getting to, to know just just you and you know yeah. your story and everything like that and glad we got to dive down some rabbit holes of of our youth and and our upbringing and everything like that it was uh it's nice to know there's other people out there that kind of share in these same experiences absolutely marcus it's so good to connect with you on that too and for our conversation to go in directions that we weren't really even expecting it to go in i mean that's i really i treasure that and i really appreciate everything that you're doing right now you're, you're crushing it and i think you're spreading a really good conservation message and you're feeling a really cool void that hasn't been filled yet for people that are sharing those stories and sharing yours and just really putting boots on the ground and getting things done too and giving back. So thank you for all that you do. Oh, well, Hey, it's, it, it's, it's kind of the least I can do. And I mean, you said it yourself, Michigan has some super rad people. So the fact that we can kind of start getting their stories out to the masses a bit more, even if it's just here in our state um, is awesome because we've got a ton of cool people doing a ton of really cool stuff. So let's, let's help people uh, hear about that. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, I think you're the only podcast dedicated to what's going on in Michigan right now too. So 
keep it going, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Episode nine with Heather Shaw. Yeah. Yeah. No, we're going to, we're going to blow this thing out. It'll be good. I'm excited about it. So <laughs> I am too. All right. Well, thank we'll you share. again, Heather. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much. All right. All right. Well, thank you again to Heather Shaw for joining me on this week's episode. Uh, be sure to rate, subscribe, follow all those good things um, to the Michigan Wild Podcast wherever you uh, are listening. I certainly uh, appreciate. Uh, excuse me. I certainly appreciate all the support and everything um, in just a few short months that the podcast has been around. Um, so until next week, Michigan, stay wild.